Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everybody, for today's episode, I've got an interview with Guy LeCharles Gonzalez, who's the project lead for the Panorama Project, which is a consortium of interested parties who are trying to figure out basically the role libraries play in the widening publishing ecosystem. You might have heard Rebecca and I talk about the project a long time ago, kind of kept my eye on it. And then Guy published a piece in Publishers Weekly um, outlining some issues that he was interested in as in the role of the project lead for the Panorama Project related to Macmillan's new policy about ebook pricing, lending, windowing, and so on and so forth. So I thought it'd be a great time to have him on the show. He was on Reading Lives back in the day. Um, so you can find out more about that in the show notes. I'll put a link to the Panorama Project and his piece there. Also wanted to say that next week, Rebecca and I are going to be talking about Weather by Jenny Offal, which um, was the selection by the Book Ride Insiders to vote on the book they wanted to talk us to talk about next. So in case you wanted to catch that quick uh, and read it in time for that to be released, that give you a heads up. I read it in one sitting. can read it very, very quickly. It's wonderful. Um, Rebecca and I were just uh, messaging each other about it this morning. We're excited to do that recording. It'll be popping up next week. All right. Uh, let's get on to the show. All right, like I said, uh, today, Gila Charles Gonzalez, who is the project lead for the Panorama Project, I think you were on as a guest for Reading Lives several years ago. I realized that when we were already connected on Skype, when I asked you to come on, like, why? Oh, that's probably why. So we've t- we probably talked about libraries in your own personal history way back when, um, but wanted to have you on. You wrote for, and I, I have to admit, Gee, I didn't realize you were at the Panorama, Panorama Project until I saw your name pop up um, in the piece you wrote for Publisher Weekly in December. Guys, it's been that long already. You know, <laughs> kind of coming, you know, asking some questions that I think have been lost a little bit in the controversy, discussion, discourse, if we can even call it that, around Macmillan's decision to. We we can talk about what verb we should use. Gate, I guess, um, ebook and audiobook use um, licenses to libraries. But before we get into that specifically, can you tell me for a minute what the Panorama Project is? Rebecca and I have talked about it before, but listeners, it's been a while. Um, tell tell us what the Panorama Project is. Yeah. So at its at its core, it's a cross industry um, initiative with an intention and a goal to help uh, measure the impact of libraries on the overall publishing ecosystem, everything from discovery to book sales, even to you know the development of authors as brands themselves. And it initially started as a data-driven initiative. The goal back at its beginning was to collect, aggregate, and analyze data from across the industry to, to really, truly measure the impact. Um, and in that first year of development, they were able to pull off a couple of um, smaller focused in, uh, projects, uh, some single title mm. uh, research initiatives, some broader industry studies around library practices. But what they quickly uh, found, and when I joined last summer, what took me not too long to kind of confirm 
is a combination of publishers don't really like to share data Mm -hmm. amongst each other. If you've ever been to any industry conference, they're well known for having some very clear high level talking points and they rarely get into any uh, deep discussions of data. So there was a reluctance to uh, share any really useful data. And there was even a bigger problem. There was the inability to access in any useful or constructive way a lot of the data they potentially could share if they had it, hmm. most specifically Amazon. Right. Uh, but not just Amazon. There, there's, you know, the, the biggest black hole in the market is actually on the print side of libraries. Nobody really knows what happens hmm. to print library books after that initial purchase. They know how many go into the system, but there is no real effective way to outside of an individual library. Um, aggregate and analyze the the circulation of print materials, which currently, at least, is still the bulk of libraries, collections, budgets. So you came on to Panorama Project last summer. Let's wait on Macmillan just for a minute. Just a couple more things. So Panorama Project really sounds to me, correct me if I'm wrong, a response to the question of what what role do library plays in the larger publishing ecosystem, not necessarily even the reading ecosystem. You know, Rebecca and I sometimes it's between the publishing industry and the reading industry. They don't sometimes they're synonymous and sometimes they're not, right? Right. And the people involved in the in the Panorama Project, I mean, even the the the, the symbol of the title suggests sort of a, an omnidirectional, full spectrum view of trying to understand is how does the library system in America impact, I'm using as a transitive verb, which I shouldn't, impact the publishing industry for good or for ill? Like, like, is it a net cost to have to sort of sell into libraries? Is it a net gain? Is there, you know, was there a hypothesis? But really, we just didn't know at all. Like some of us, and I'll throw myself in here, have a, I guess, an emotional response, like, duh, libraries are good for publishers because of we can get into that. But am I, am I oversimplifying to say that that's the essential question is we just don't know what and how much and then even in what direction libraries affect um, the fate of publishing writ large? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there is that general emotional sense of libraries are great. They're a cultural good and particularly in relation to books, you know, it, for all intents and purposes, books are libraries brand. Right. Even in a world where libraries have expanded well beyond books when it comes to the, the services they offer. Mm-hmm. Um, what what seems to have happened over the past few years is, you know, the challenges big publishers are facing with ebooks. you know, around 2015, ebook sales allegedly kind of plateaued and yeah. then started to decline. Um, emotional, the emotional good starts to butt up against the mm-hmm. financial realities. And where there's a lot of questions, um, you start looking for the easy answers. So there aren't a lot of easy answers when it comes to what's happening. Why are, why are ebook sales declining? More, but more broadly, libraries are the most opaque part of the publishing market. Uh, what I guess nine years ago now, in the second year of digital book world, when I was still running it, we put a couple of panels together about libraries. And uh, Steve Potash from Overdrive and George Coe from Baker and Taylor, they were the two big library uh, mm-hmm. wholesale representatives, print and ebook back then. And on stage, they both acknowledged, they were like, look, part of this is our challenge. We don't give publishers enough useful data for them to know what's actually happening in libraries. This was 2011. Mm-hmm. 
fast forward to 2019, we're kind of in not the same position. Overdrive is actually, I found, relatively willing to share data. And if you're an Overdrive customer, like I've seen their back end, what publishers can see, mm. you actually have access to a lot of really interesting data. You just have to have the bandwidth and desire to, you know, it's kind of the catch-22. Everybody wanted data, and now we're in this world where we've got <laughs> tons of data, right. and most people don't have the resources to actually do anything useful with it. Yeah, and it's so hard on a title-by-title -title basis, too, because there's so many SKUs, to use the, mm -hmm. you know, the industry term, that even comparing one to another, you may not know what you're looking at, and you need really big data sets, Um across titles, across genres, across time, all the sorts of things you could do. So pulling those from all those different buckets is hard, especially if those buckets are hard to get to. Let me back up just for a second. It's interesting to me to think about, you know, I've done a little bit of um, history of the American Public Library. I did a long episode about, you know, the Carnegie Library system and that revolution in America. I don't know much about this question of whether or not libraries are, quote unquote, good for publishing has been something that's evolved over time. Is something that people thought about in like say, 1974, just to pick a random date, right? right? When print was the thing. Is it your sense that because digital is a thing that publishers maybe could control differently than print, that they're interested in it now? Or have publishers always been interested? Because my understanding is, you know, right before the first ebook became available on Overdrive for a public library, let's say I'm checking out, I'm trying to think of a good example, The Color Purple in 1982 or whatever. The library just bought print and they loan it out. And publishers mm -hmm. couldn't do anything about it. So it didn't really matter whether or not they thought it was good or bad for publishing. It was just a thing they could do. But right. as digital licensing has allowed them to, I guess, open or close the valve, then it's a more interesting question because should we, there's a, they should, maybe they should open the valve. Maybe they should close it. Or what's, what's your sense of how much this digital overdrive, digital licensing rights management has brought it to something like, well, there's actually something, we could make a decision about this rather just living with whatever the table stakes are. Right. Uh, I, I think that is the fundamental difference. In print, libraries write to acquire and circulate print books. Publishers have zero say over that. Yeah. It's for sale doctrine. Um, there, you know, over the years, my understanding is publishers have always kind of had a love-hate mm. relationship, but it was one of those, it is what it is. We can't control it. So what we can do, you know, every big five publisher and a lot of uh, smaller ones either have dedicated library marketing teams or have within their consumer marketing um, carved out a library focus. At a minimum, they're at ALA themselves. They're trying to get their uh, authors into um, libraries for readings and events and stuff like that. So there's, if you look at the way publishers engage with libraries outside of eBooks, you get the sense of, okay, you know, you wouldn't put the time and effort into a channel that you don't value. That makes a yeah. lot of sense to me because, you know, just to, a little behind the, the curtain with us, like we have advertisers that are looking to reach library, you know, staff, library, you know, acquisitions, people at libraries. So if they would prefer them not to be buying their copies of their books, that would seem to be a nonsensical tactic. Like, wh right. why advertise to library acquisitions people if you would really prefer them not to have copies of your book? I guess, is there an answer to that? I don't even know what the answer would be. So I, I think one of the answers is publishers value libraries. Where, 
one of my frustrations last summer when the McMillan thing blew up is there was this instinctive um, reflex to be like, oh, don't publishers understand the value of libraries and discovery, blah, blah, blah. It's like they absolutely that that's never been in question mm -hmm. because if they didn't, you know, even McMillan, if they didn't value the discovery at, uh, angle, they wouldn't have even offered the one embargoed copy. Because that one embargoed copy guaranteed that book is in the library ecosystem, discoverable to those readers. What Macmillan got was the friction that in their mind, a library patron would see the lack of availability. They'd learn about the book. So there's this acceptance that there's a channel of readers who do discover books through the library. Macmillan's mm -hmm. calculation, which remains to be seen if they were right or not, is those uh, library patrons are buyers first and are going to the library to avoid buying the book. And when they see it's not available, oh, well, I'll go buy it anyway, as opposed to understanding that the majority of library users, particularly you know highly active library users, they're library first. So they choose to read in the library. And if a book either really speaks to them or they decide it's one they want to own or it's one they want to buy for someone else, that library usage then translates to a sale. Macmillan has kind of flipped that on their head and they believe that libraries inherently represent a lost sale first, especially for eBooks. And so that's what drove their decision. But there is, you know, there is not a single publisher I'm aware of that doubts or at least has publicly ever claimed libraries aren't valuable for marketing. And one of the initiatives we're, we're launching this year is to actually measure mm. that value because libraries do a lot more than just circulate uh, your books. They're doing a lot of marketing. Um, you know, booksellers get all the love and attention for hand selling. <laughs> That's literally something librarians, you know, part of their degree. They go to school when they get their MLS. Part, you know, part of what they're learning is the discipline of readers' advisory. Yeah. So it's not your favorite local bookseller who's really into sci-fi and can make great recommendations. This is this is the difference between your essential oils people and your doctor who's actually trained right. yeah. to treat you. you know? Right. It's fascinating. Um, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break and we'll come back real quick. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him, unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be. Right? Right, girl. Like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. 
So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl fighting her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who's moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Abachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. All right, we're back. Um, I guess let's go back to this summer. Um, had you started already when the Macmillan News dropped? It sounds like it was pretty close, if not right before or right after. Yeah, so I, I took over uh, like in the first week of July, and it was supposed to be, you know, it's the summer in publishing. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be a quiet transition as we figured out exactly, you know, at that point, you know, uh, the project had made the decision to kind of pivot away from uh, trying to push this more data-driven focus, more towards advocacy and engagement. And part of why, you know, I was picked is my proximity to the city. I live right. here in the New York area. And they wanted someone who could actually get into the office, have meetings with publishers, and really advocate for um, working with the project, working to uh, develop some transparency, find some data initiatives people could agree on. Um, that wasn't happening as effectively over email or once or twice a sure, year at yeah. conferences. So yeah, I was, it was originally going to be a couple of months of ease in. And then have a game plan ready for September when everybody came back from Labor Day. And a week and a half, two weeks in, Macmillan announces their new terms and everything blew up. Everything blew up. Um, so, it's, I mean, you were new on the job, so it sounds like you were surprised. Was your sense after it happened and sort of since it's happened largely a one of surprise on the part of publishing writ large of – or, or did they like it was just a matter of time before someone tried this or like how, how much of a shakeup was this within publishing itself, as, as you could tell? Well, so at that point, you know, they had already conducted the tour experiment and they had bizarrely um, released some info through Jason Sanford. Uh, that was so strange. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah strange. You know, my I don't know him, but he's apparently a sci fi writer who blogs through yep. his Patreon and. So uh, to this day, I don't even know that he knows why they chose him <laughs> to release that information. Yeah. Because he clearly wasn't, you know, at first I was like, ah, he must, you know, maybe he's got a tour book deal in the works and this was a little quid pro quo. He's been highly skeptical of the the uh, analysis as well. Mm -hmm. So it was really weird. Um, but I knew the tour uh, experiment was underway and I knew something was coming. Like everybody knew mm. Macmillan is prepared to announce new terms. All the other big five at that point had adjusted their terms and basically opted. You know, in Sargent's words, publishers have two levers, price and availability. Mm -hmm. Historically, since HarperCollins back in 2012 uh, initiated the first metered version uh, for ebooks with their 26 checkouts. Um, ever since then, the lever has been price and 
availability through metering, but not through windowing or embargo. Right. Okay. So the general sense was, <clears throat> worst case scenario, Macmillan would really jack up the price in some early window mm. um, in line with what they claimed they saw their findings from the tour experiment. Um, but I don't think anybody thought that they would take the results of their sci-fi imprint and take it line-wide across yeah. the entire company. That, I think, for me, was the biggest surprise. Um, everything else, and I guess the other surprise was the claim that you would ever hear from a library that limiting access to a book is in any way on the table. Mm. Like, at that point, you are cutting, you know, there are two things libraries believe in, privacy and unfettered access. Mm -hmm. So to say you did, you know, the, these series of meetings and part of the feedback you got was um, people would be, you know, the way they framed it was um, the perpetual access was more important than anything else. And so Macmillan kind of converted that to, okay, we'll give you one for the mm -hmm. first eight weeks. And then, so yeah, so I, I think from Macmillan's perspective, it, it was a PR disaster that they really didn't even understand in the first few weeks why, you know, in their mind, it was like, why are we being treated so bad? Everybody else raised their price. We're the only ones still doing perpetual access. You know, we, we thought we were doing something the library community wanted. Right. Which, you know, if you truly believe that, says a lot about that listening tour and what you thought you heard versus what you were being told. Um, yeah, I keep, so, yeah. Thinking, I keep thinking about the PR piece of it versus the business strategy piece of it and how there seemed to be a bit of a dis well, a bit of a disconnect is probably underselling it is like yeah. they seemed completely unprepared to deal with the velocity and vociferousness of the outcry and then the response from major library systems say you know what uh i guess screw you guys we're not buying macmillan yeah. ebooks we're not buying macmillan audiobooks I guess, is there a way if they had been more cognizant of what they were getting into, assuming they still would do it, which I think is right. up for debate at this point, if they really knew what they were getting <laughs> to, would they actually find it to be the marginal value to be worth it? Is there a way to have sold this differently? I, that's the question that's interesting to me at this point, because there, I, I kind of understand the pricing model Macmillan is thinking about and windowing, and the analogy I've used is like movie releases, right? If you want to go see Avengers Endgame, the first six weeks, you got to pay full freight at your movie theater. Maybe you can go to a matinee and, and right. get it, right? Well, and then later, and then there's a windowing period where you can buy it uh, as a Blu-ray for some ungodly amount of money, and then you can buy it on iTunes, and then you can stream it on iTunes, and eventually you can stream it on Netflix or whatever else it might be. In publishing, the windowing they have is hardcover and then paperback. On the digital side, they've I don't know... In the years I've been doing this, I've never heard of someone windowing ebooks. I know that was a thing people thought about before, and certainly not windowing libraries. Is there a way in which they could have spun this differently, or was this going to be, it was inevitably going to be read as, you know, screwing libraries, and especially libraries um, that are large and in urban areas that have um, less affluent patrons? Was there any way around this, or was this, was this die cast from the moment they said this is the way we're going to do it? Um, I, I think the once you make the decision to limit a library's ability to access content, you've crossed a line. Yeah. And the uniqueness of books is, again, 
books are inherently tied into libraries brand in a way movies and all basically every other media mm -hmm. can kind of do whatever they want a because their business models are actually different so in movies you can't stream avengers endgame on day one and only libraries are yep. uh you know can't access it you only can go to the movies and back in the early days of ebooks, there was some <clears throat> purposeful or just production related windowing yeah. that was happening. And what, um, you know, my sense is what they quickly realized is as ebooks were gaining velocity, that was just going to encourage piracy. Yeah. So windowing books was never going to be, forget libraries, just broadly speaking, was never going to be feasible. That's, so, one, that's one email I got from someone saying, are they concerned? They must not be concerned about pir piracy at all at this point to make this kind of move, which I had frankly forgotten about piracy as a, as a concern for books writ large. I don't know if it is or isn't, but if you're really, if this, if you're going to choke off another Avenue, then it would seem like pir piracy would be a concern. Yeah. Well, and so <laughs> flashback again, another yeah. irony. 2010, Brian Apak of Macmillan, uh, one of our big uh, presentations that year, was their seven-point plan to uh, tackle piracy. And point four was establishing a consumer-friendly marketplace, which, you know, I went through that entire deck um, at some point last year, just mm. to refresh my memory. No mention of libraries at that point, because huh. Macmillan was not uh, selling their eBooks into libraries yet. I think they were the last publisher mm. to uh, make eBooks accessible to libraries. But in 2010, one of the things they recognized is, one of the biggest uh, reasons for piracy is the difficult consumer experience. Yeah. And, and that was either the same year or the year before that there was this huge presentation about like the 24 steps to check out an ebook from a library. Right. <clears throat> yeah. So, so back then, you know, Macmillan recognized both the challenge that piracy uh, represented and also one of the key factors was um, not having consumer-friendly options to purchase that book because a lot of piracy is about the desire to buy and the inability to. Yeah. yeah. And again, you go back to that lost sale uh, concept. One of the biggest issues around piracy that never was fully studied was how much of piracy is actually a lost sale versus people who are never going to pay for your book anyway and you, you chalk it up to marketing. That was always uh, a challenging debate that publishers never fully kind of wrap their heads around. Mm -hmm. My understanding is piracy hasn't faded. It's just there are mechanisms in place that there are companies who are actively monitoring all these sites, takedowns get issued. So piracy hasn't gone away. I think it's been, to use a, a terrible analogy, considering the state we're oh, in right yeah. now, mm -hmm. it's been contained. Right. Mitigated, yeah. I guess, is the yeah. term of art for these days, right? Right. Um, the other question I have, well, I've got. I want to get to a couple of things you you wrote about in the piece, especially too. Um, we've been talking about how this is an ebook and audiobook story, and knowing that print is one of the a, a huge part of the question. You know, uh, the another thing that I think I haven't heard as many people talking about, and I've been talking, Rebecca, and I've been talking about it because we were advocating for years how bad the experience, like you said, of checking out an ebook or an audiobook from a public library was. Until really Libby came along, which was, I guess, a facelift, a skin, a, a front-end UX overhaul for OverDrive that made it a lot better. 
um, to, to speak anecdotally, my own experience, my usage of ebooks and audiobooks through my local library has gone up considerably. I haven't, you know, I don't have a spreadsheet for it or anything, but I'll look there um, first most of the time because it's on my phone. Um, my data speeds are good. I can download things easily. It's easy to see what's available. Um, and the friction of checking out an ebook and an audiobook, frankly, is way less than even doing a print book now, where I put yeah. it on hold and I got to go. And again, it's my library is four blocks from my house, Guy. It's not like I'm driving across town. But even those four blocks will make it so forget about my preference for print or digital. It's about me having to leave my house and yep. getting there and waiting and knowing I've got a seven-day window to go to the shelf and whatever. Is that part of the story here? Is that people, you know, as publishers were worried about ebooks, they thought it was going to um, you know, basically cannibalize print sale. Is part of the story here that it is just a great experience? It's so much better of an experience now to check out books digitally from your library? Is that part of the, the thinking, do you think? Uh, I mean, that's definitely an area that Sargent has specifically keyed in on is the lack of, the increasing lack of friction yeah. in library lending for eBooks. Um, they've identified as a factor. Um, in terms of just overall, no question it's a factor because the the other thing Macmillan admits is their library revenue has gone out. Right. Largely as a result of uh, ebooks and libraries at the end of the day. And, and this is, you know, this is the catch 22 for libraries. Libraries are very much about, you know, serving the community, giving them what they want as best as they can. So as consumer demand mm. has shifted towards ebooks, libraries purchasing has shifted toward ebooks to meet that demand. And what you're seeing in the improvement of the lending experience, the you know, the overall economics of, you know, where people do and don't have disposable income these days, the number of things you can spend your money on digital that are not ebooks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one, one of the things that I've been harping on is, you know, you can't talk about the last five years of ebooks and only say library lending is a factor. You know, one of the great things when this Macmillan thing first popped up, and I was kind of surprised but Potash and Overdrive, you know, wrote, I don't know if you saw that. He oh, I saw it. We post. talked about yeah. it. It was an, a, remarkable, yeah. a remarkable document in a lot of ways. We could talk about it. Yeah. And I mean, it's rare that a vendor will call out a partner <laughs> so publicly. But, but the thing that re really resonated with me was you know, the numbers for it. And that wasn't just the numbers of tour books. That was Macmillan across the board. The numbers were relatively small. Yes. So what it said to me is, okay, either you're grossly overstating libraries' impact or you're grossly overstating your retail sales because of this few, if an average of eight checkouts is impacting your sales line-wide that you've made this decision list-wide, you're not selling a lot of books. Can't be and, the case. Unless they, unless they were doing some kind of projection about the future or something else, maybe. I mean, maybe it's defensive to some degree. I have no, I thought that was remarkable too. Yeah. So, so here's my semi-informed speculation. Right. I'm going to pull this broader than McMillan. That, this is brilliant. This is exactly what we want. Let's go. <laughs> so there's a couple of things. There, there are definitely other publishers who are looking at what McMillan's doing and saying, hmm, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> Right. I think where libraries really help themselves, I, I think part of Macmillan's calculation, because they've seen it year after year, at the end of the day, libraries will complain, but they'll keep it in-house, they'll take it on the chin, and they'll figure out how to balance their budget and make it work. So every time the terms have changed and prices have gone up, 
you know, there's been a couple of weeks of anger and then it fades. This time, libraries are like, you know what? You've crossed a line. Mm. Not only are we going to go public with this, we're going to actively push it out to our patrons. You remember when Macmillan and Amazon had their battle? Oh, yeah. And Macmillan pulled the buy buttons? Yeah. And then when uh, the publishers finally won slash lost the agency (laughs) battle, Amazon was like, okay, price set by X. And X was the name of the publisher. Suddenly, publishers became brand names in a way they never wanted, Mm -hmm. which was... Macmillan is the reason you're paying $14.99 for this ebook that we were trying to sell you for $9.99. In Amazon's uh, version of it, it was a very cynical, kind of petty uh, thing to do. But I get why they did it, because mm-hmm. it was also true. Like, you know. Yeah, it happens to be true. I mean, it might be petty, right. but sometimes petty yeah. is true. <laughs> exactly. In Library's case, it was <clears throat> we've we can't take this one on the chin. Yeah, this is not yeah. about charging us more and stretching our budgets. You are fundamentally attacking one of our core principles. We need to let our patrons know, not just so, hey, it's Macmillan's fault you can't see this book, but I think libraries finally recognize we have to draw this line and start getting our patrons engaged with supporting us yeah. as opposed to us just doing everything we can. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the, the libraries that are embargoing They've got a tough calculation. Mm-hmm. My understanding is the majority of them have their community support. And what I've heard anecdotally is those uh, those delayed holes, those long hold lists that are being generated from Macmillan books are not translating to an uptick in Macmillan sales. It's translating to library users going to read another book that's available because that's how most library yeah. users use the library. I mean, I, I, one of my question would be, one of my questions I had written for you is like, if you could get one piece of data, even if it was impossible to get, like, let's say you could, you know, um, Harry Potter, Accio data, one data point from anything related to, to books and, and reading and libraries and purchasing, what would it be? My guess was, and tell me if I write, it would be something around this, like what percentage of people who encounter a huge hold list for something they're interested in actually go out and buy the book somewhere else? Is that the, is that the key? I mean, would we start there or where else would you start if not there? Um, I, th- I think that's an interesting data point, but it's it's a difficult one to expand uh, outward because, yeah. to extrapolate on because again, the activity around tour that's a specific subset of readers. Yeah, right. And you know, sci-fi readers are not you know um, monolithic and no. only sci-fi, but more monolithic. Know. Just capital R readers are, I guess. I mean, it's more specific than that, at least. Right. Yeah. So, but if you so take the analysis. Let's take Macmillan at their word. They they did this windowing, they did their analysis, and across the board, they saw an uptick in sales for the embargoed books. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, remember, on average, eight checkouts before an ebook expired pre-embargo for Macmillan books. So what you're telling me is through these uh, embargoes, an average of eight checkouts over the course of two years in eight, well, I guess that initial test was a four-month window. Right. 16 weeks. Right. You're telling me that that impacted your sales in the first four months of a book's release significantly enough to transform your entire line to uh, this windowed model. So that tells me, A, you're letting what, by definition, publishing considers a super niche um, mm-hmm. genre, sci-fi and fantasy. Um, mm-hmm. 
I don't know if you saw uh, uh, NPD did this report about The Witcher. And no, I didn't Netflix. see that. So they, they did this write-up about the success of the Netflix series and what it had done to uh, book sales. Oh, yeah, like 500,000 copies more sold or something like that? I yeah, that ac- the across the yeah. eight-book series. <laughs> right. um, well, no, they, they went to press for 500,000. Oh, that's what it was. Right, right. right yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the framing of it, they called The Witcher a niche IP despite the last game in the series selling 20 million copies in two uh, years. Uh, what, what new book sold 20 million copies in two no, years? Not, nothing we, that I can think of. We know about it. <laughs> yeah, we know about it. It's, like, know? it's like all the dog man put together. It's like... Exactly. No, it's something like... So that's really interesting because like whether... Because you would think sci-fi fantasy readers on the whole would be more technologically... Like this is one thing we know about romance readers and sci-fi readers especially is they're very technologically proficient when it comes to, you know, reading on e-readers, following specific authors. They're very loyal, blah, blah, blah. Hard to see how that translates necessarily to book clubs, like a book club hit like Where the Crawdads Sing... Like it feels like the shape of sales much must be completely different. I, the the only thing that makes sense to me, Gee, about that average eight checkouts is it must be very top heavy. Uh, it yes. must be it must be that there are some books that really they feel like really are taking up sales that could get other places in that initial window, and the vast majority of them, like you know, eighty five percent of them probably aren't doing anything. But those top fifteen percent, I guess, like book sales writ large, the top fifteen cent percent are like paying for everybody else. Th- they must have seen enough at the very top end to tell them something because the average doesn't make any sense to me. I agree with right. you on that. And, and that's where I think the truth of this situation is. And I think the Macmillan's kind of overreach in making this decision, the impact, my guess is they'll probably see a little boost for a couple of their yeah. big bestsellers that are buzzy people. I have no doubt <laughs> to cross lines here, mm-hmm. American Dirt probably saw a boost in sales from curious readers who might have just gone to the library for right. it and said, you know what? I'm hearing a lot about this book. I'm going to go buy it. Right. That's one book. You know who didn't get a boost in interest? 95% yeah, of right, right. Macmillan's other books that libraries often help subsidize mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that initial release because they're not getting the marketing push that American Dirt or the A-list titles are getting. Libraries represent a larger percentage of their initial sales, and libraries end up doing a lot of the heavy lifting to drive attention and discovery for those books because everybody knows big publishing, corporate publishing, is very top-heavy. It's not even 15%. 5% -hmm. of your big five list is getting that big marketing push, everybody else might be getting a $5,000 social media campaign. And I guess that, that that speaks to one of the points in your piece for Publishers Weekly about the sort of trying to square the circle of how much money libraries pump into the publishing industry directly, like in actual, in terms of material acquisition, right? It was $1.5 yes. billion a year, I think is the number you had. And that the, the total number you said for publishing was about $12 billion, right? So it's you know, pushing 10% of the total revenue for the publishing industry writ large, or at least that's, you know, if we knew more about, potentially it could be as much of that. You know, so one way of thinking about it is like, well, maybe there's marginal value in like seven extra copies of American Dirt sold in Des Moines, Iowa, because they couldn't get on the whole. But what you're jeopardizing is that sort of, I guess, floor of revenue, right? Kind of that that baseline. If if libraries are like, you know what, we're not going to buy any of your titles. How much marginal value do you have to, 
get from everybody else if that's the case. Like, it does seem like they didn't think about the possibility that that underlying sort of taken for granted, inf- you know, recurring, like you said, um, uh, reliable purchasing by libraries might be in jeopardy if, if they shook the tree too much. Yep. I mean, if you if you know how uh, libraries purchase, um, a lot because so much of library acquisitions are you know patron demand. Yeah. Patron demand is just you know, the library version of consumer demand. Consumer demand is driven by the bestseller list, what publishers are putting their marketing behind. So right off the bat, libraries are spending the bulk of their uh, acquisition budgets on the prospective bestsellers, the ones the, li- the publishers have put all their marketing behind, right. the ones that are getting uh, priority for reviews and stuff. So what, uh, what I think Macmillan didn't count on was not just the blowback, but the actual libraries boycotting and saying, yeah. hey, we're not going to buy. And in some cases, you know, they're only boycotting ebook, which in some ways potentially if they're <laughs> right. if they're supplementing that by buying more print, in some ways they're playing into Macmillan's hands. Some of those systems, though, have said, you know, outright, we're not going to buy any Macmillan books for the period of this window. At the point you decide not to play the game, what's the demand nine weeks out? Yeah. Now you're only, you right. know, so we're nine weeks out. No, are we? No, we're about six weeks for American, American Dirt. Dirt. Yeah. But you know, take a book, unless it is a true bestseller hit, and not that, you know, I got on there one week and I get to call no, myself no. a bestseller, but a, you know, has some legs, stays on the list for several weeks and builds on that momentum. Those are now the books that come week nine when libraries can buy more. That's when they're going to say, okay, nope. well, what's don't the demand now? We don't right? need them. We don't need them. Yeah. Right. Or we only need these six that you have kind of marketed its way into the um, the, the zeitgeist. Mm. And we're going to spend more to meet the demand on those and nothing on the rest of your list. Yeah. So what you've effectively done is perpetuated the A-list authors get the best of everything mm. and mid-list get screwed in the library market. You've kind of guaranteed that yeah my only my only pr thought was and again i I think i agree with you that there was no way to spin this um if they were going to try to the way i would have come at it is author dollar somehow if they could say like we're gonna authors actually are gonna get more money writ large after this i don't think it's possible because for the reasons you just outlined it's not the big authors are gonna get more and everyone will get less and there's no way to really to really help say that's gonna help anything else um one other point you brought up too that hey people have listened to the show know Nothing raises my temperature like talking about ebook pricing. Um, I haven't had a good I haven't had a good vent about it in a while, though. You brought it up, and you say you know you can't really talk about, or at least you shouldn't talk about responsibly the dynamics of ebooks, book sales, libraries, and publishing without talking about that. If I go on Amazon to buy um, uh, Deacon King Kong by James McBride, that's out this week. It's fourteen ninety nine as a Kindle book. And sixteen dollars and forty two cents is a hardback with two day prime shipping for me. Yep. And why on earth? I mean, really, unless unless I have an accessibility problem or I just love my e reader so much, why on earth would I do that? Why on earth would I would I buy that much? And it's one of those situations where I feel like there's a self inflicted wound that they're looking out and, and blaming like I don't I don't know someone like shoe manufacturers because they shot themselves in the foot because there wasn't enough padding <laughs> on the shoe or something like that. Right? Am, am I being dramatic here? Talk me down off my ebooks. You know my network. Um, you know I'm mad as hell. and I'm not going to take any more about ebook pricing. 
Well, so so go back to that uh, you know battling piracy, the right. consumer friendly marketplace. So this to me is kind of the, the the law of unintended consequences. When publishers fought for agency, part of the uh, one of the main reasons was they wanted to, and you know there was some uh, I think legitimate concern there around the damage cheap ebooks could potentially do to the print marketplace, right. specifically physical booksellers. There was a goal of preserving for as long as possible that uh, brick and mortar infrastructure that was that was really important to corporate publishers in particular, mm-hmm. you know, who are driven by scale and those big superstore uh, shelves that stop a ton of books. So, you know, that whole agency battle was kind of premised on Amazon charging $9.99 or less for eBooks is going to really damage print sales and particularly print sales outside of Amazon. So they made that calculation and all for, you know, all indications are it worked. <clears throat> yeah. Print sales have been pretty steady over the past uh, decade. Uh, brick and mortar, I hesitate to call it has is on a resurgence. I think ABA kind of overstates things. Yeah, a little I bit. agree with you. We, that's a separate yeah. for a different podcast. Yeah, but it's a nice media narrative. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. It, but there's some fundamental truth to it. I think publishers were successful in keeping print afloat, protecting their you know what is still their primary revenue driver. The unintended consequence was, as library lending yeah. lost its friction. Now it's not just the calculation of, hey, do I pay for this expensive ebook or this slightly same price, maybe even cheaper <laughs> print book? Or wait a second, I actually like ebooks and chose that as my preferred. Well, and audiobooks is the one, the real one. I think that's the unintended consequences because when they were fighting for agency pricing, they didn't foresee a world in which audiobooks were maybe 26, 27, 28 percent of the of the of revenue. Uh, and now they're really in a pickle because you go to Audible and it's this obscurantist like gnomic pricing system about <laughs> subscriptions and credits and member pricing versus whatever. Like that was a train I don't think they really saw coming at all in, in trying to protect print book sales because audio doesn't, in my estimation, audio does not compete with print. That's my sense of it writ large is that it just absolutely doesn't compete with print. It's a different product for, for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. I agree. So yeah, I, how much is it, how much is like that audio became this third wheel that if we believe the numbers is now more in terms of gross revenue um, than ebooks for publishers? So so my sense of audiobooks is is two things. A much much like ebooks, publishers weren't paying attention <laughs> and it was a new revenue stream that yeah. was like, hey, new revenue for books we already published. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of publishers, they weren't even putting, you know, some of the bigger ones have developed their own internal studios and are putting a lot of money into these productions. Most publishers were, you know, remember the early days of eBooks, there were tons of conversion companies overseas yep. that were cranking out terrible. Very, very bad. <laughs> yeah, very bad, but the money was there. Uh-huh. And, you know, early on in that uh, product cycle, people were willing to deal with the lesser quality, partly because they were cheaper. Hmm. <clears throat> Audiobooks, I think, are following a similar pattern. The biggest difference there to me is Amazon kind of already owns that yeah. market. Yeah, oh, God, it's true. Even more so than uh, they did with eBooks. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, we could talk about what the great sort of publishing deals, um, but Amazon buying Audible in two thousand four, two thousand five. I mean, I don't <sighs> know. I don't. That long ago? I, I mean, that that's one where like 
even at the time, I don't think anyone thought that that was going to be a, of a big of a deal. Gee, what else is there? What else should people know if they're interested in this sort of dialogue, fact-finding, investigation, open question, really, about how libraries contribute to the health of the publishing system writ large? What, what are you most interested in trying to find out? So I think two things that are, I think, particularly relevant for the Book Riot audience mm -hmm. is, you know, there, so there's the, the marketing aspect that, you know, I mentioned earlier on. Publishers don't deny uh, libraries value when it comes to marketing. What they don't do is put an actual value on it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're working on is to actually come up with some metrics that libraries can apply to their various activities. Authors of author events are one of the biggest ones, yeah. and not just for the book sales that people kind of default to, but the marketing they do around those events. So one of the examples we looked at out in Cuyahoga County, which is a um, suburb of Cleveland, pretty big um, Midwestern library system, one of the more innovative in the country, do tons of author and book related events throughout the year. So they did an analysis of the marketing they did around one author. I forget who she was. Not super famous, but established, like you know, an author that people are into. The libraries didn't have to create an audience for her appearance, but they still put a lot of marketing behind it. Email, on the website, in their various branches. That particular system has a weekly TV show on public access that they do. So when they put together and applied a value to all, you know, if a publisher was paying to promote that event as if it were, say, at a bookstore right. or a standalone venue and so had to pay for all that marketing, that was about $15,000 in equivalent marketing. And there is no publisher spending $15,000 on a single author event on the outskirts of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. Just not happening. You know? But that's the value that library delivered for that author and their book for one event, which coincidentally also sold a number of books through their local bookseller partnership. So it counts for the bestseller list, blah, blah, blah. But there's that unmeasured value that, A, I don't think most authors have any clue hmm. about the value and the value relative to what their own publisher actually spent on them. Right. Because most authors, I mean, there is no public average that anybody will admit to, but in my anecdotal conversations with marketers at different companies, the average book is getting five to ten thousand dollars marketing at the high end. I, I would average. say, if coming from it from the other side, Guy, it's lower than that. <laughs> yeah, well, and you, yeah. you know what? You you know exactly what some right. of them spend because yeah, yeah, you're yeah. one of their channels. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so one of the uh, but one of the other hidden aspects there is librarians themselves are one of the biggest segments of book reviewers in the industry, mm -hmm. both professional through, you know, Publishers Weekly, Library Journal, Book Awareness. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah, a lot of their reviewers bylined and not, you know, through Publishers Weekly, which doesn't byline, mm -hmm. a lot of those are librarians who are, for the most part, doing it for the love because it's their job. Right. A lot of those uh, outlets don't even pay for reviews or pay next to nothing. Yeah. So you've got a category of professionals who you are antagonizing through your business practices, but relying on them to promote your books literally. Like librarians are what first line of influencers, forget Instagram and bookstagram nonsense. Like librarians are your original influencers who do a lot of the pre-publication heavy lifting to even get a book to the point mm. of being buzzworthy. So it sounds like some of the challenge or some of the goal is to uncover 
um, the hidden value of libraries efforts so that publishers could make different decisions if they want to. One of them might be shut up about ebook lending already. Like just don't, you know, just don't worry about that or factor that into your um, equation. Some could be actually additional support. Well, actually there's a lot of value here that if we did some more things to support libraries along these different ways, we might see a multiplicative effect on the value they're already providing. Is that fair? Yeah. 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 And again, you know, I'm coming at this from while I am personally right. passionate about libraries importance, I am more, uh, more importantly, I'm vested in real data. Yeah. Like, I, just like I dismiss anybody who's like, Hey, Twitter sells books. Well, show me some proof. Right. I like, I like Twitter. Yeah. Don't know. get me started on Reese's book club. That's a whole nother, <laughs> oh, that's yeah. a whole nother yes. thing. Yeah. That's <laughs> similar, similar sort of situation there because it could like the example I was going to bring up yours is good. Cause you've actually done the data is that, um, that every I can't I don't I can't remember the title here in Portland, uh, Oregon. The library system uses for their basically let's get everyone to read one book. It's the Tommy Orange there there, and there was you know stand up posters in every branch. Got an email about it. There was additional availability. Then I saw Powell's put in the window that it was the Multnomah County Library pick, and so you know people are looking at it that way. And I guess one way of understanding it is that they don't have to be in tension or necessarily going along. They don't have to be rowing in the same direction or rowing against each other. They're sort of working in parallel in ways that people, that the publishers don't especially understand. But I, I'm to the point now with the backlash here, and I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's our political moment. And this is an outlet for people who want to do something to sign a petition about Macmillan and their library. Maybe they've done it anyway, um, given our political moment and the kinds of people that tend to support libraries. But it seems to me like, if you if you have anything if if a publisher has any initiative that they that can be spun as making it harder for libraries to do what they do, you're going to lose, Guy. You're going to lose at this point. I I, I can't come another way. I can't think of a better way of saying it. Yeah, and and so in in the way they framed it, the thing that personally got me, mm-hmm. and this is this at this point, this is me coming off of two years back at Writers Digest, right. and you know really working closely with authors and stuff was the premise that library lending was ultimately having a negative impact on author royalties. Like they took it down to that very specific, Oh, we're going to pit authors versus libraries. Yeah. They, they could have kept it broader, like <laughs> right. impacting our consumer sale, but they, they not only made it super specific, made it super specific for an audience that actually has no clue. Authors don't get libraries broken out in their royalty statements. Mm -hmm. So now you've got a category uh, constituency who, for the most part, every author has some kind of, you know, beloved story about a library as a child. You know, it's part of the author origin story. Almost to where it's like, yeah, dude, we know. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I know. You you read uh, Fan of Tollbooth when you were six. Congratulations. <laughs> right. So, but that was an interesting moment because, again, flashing back to Macmillan's battles with Amazon, one of the things that forced Amazon to blink was, coincidentally, their sci-fi authors using their individual platforms mm. to tell their audience, hey, this is bullshit pushback. I'm changing all my Amazon links, Barnes and Noble, right. IndieBound right. got a nice right. boost at that point. Um, what's been interesting to me this time around is authors have been staggeringly silent for the most part. Hmm. And, you know, th- th- it even popped up uh, again last week. So Neil Gaiman just announced um, some Audible right. deal yes. for, uh, I forget which one of his, one of yeah, his I think it's books. Neverwhere he's going to do a yes. new, uh, new performance. So, yeah. 
So it's an Audible exclusive. This is a dude who like publicly has often declared his love of libraries. Has I found a whole speech he did about five yeah, years ago yeah, about yeah. why libraries are important. And so there's the question of, dude, do you not know you just cut off this institution yep. you claim to love from accessing this content? Or do you not care? Mm. And that's the challenge for me is, you know, how much of this is author's lack of awareness? Right. Because that's fair. They, libraries are an opaque space that most people don't understand how they work. And there's that emotional, hey, we love them. But if the people who pay you money for the sales of your books are telling you, hey, these guys are impacting your sales, I get if your first instinct is, whoa, well, you know, do what you think is right because mm -hmm. you know the business. Um, but I, I do think it's important for authors and for their various associations to really step up and be like, hey, we're not picking a side here because we don't have the data. Right. It'd be one thing if Authors Guild was like, hey, we support Macmillan's approach to this because they shared with us the data and we see the impact. Mm -hmm. They didn't share the data with anybody by a sergeant's own admission. So there, there's an author aspect. And you know, from a book riot uh, audience perspective, you, know, you guys are avid readers and fans of these authors. Call them out. Don't be mean. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we talked about but that like, on the show when this came out about how, you know, no one's, no one, overgeneralizing, right? No one was yes. getting on Audible for not lending into libraries. It's Macmillan's gating, and that's a disaster. But no one's, to our knowledge, was saying, and by the way, while we're talking about this, let's also remember that all these Audible originals um, from authors we really like, and I don't want to call anyone else specifically here um, necessarily, <laughs> are doing these exclusives that to my knowledge, unless the terms are different than I understand, will never be available through Libby for people to listen to because um, Audible's check's too fat and Audible's building a, a walled garden of content much like other streaming services. You have to go there um, rather than other places. Okay, we could do this all day. Guy <laughs> Gonzalez um, of the Panorama Project. Where could people keep up with the Panorama Project? What's the best way to do that, Guy? So you can go to panoramaproject.org.org mm -hmm. and you can sign up there for our mailing list and we'll keep you up to date on uh, developments in our research and various projects. Uh, on Twitter, we're at panorama, P-R-O-J-O-R-G, mm -hmm. uh, project org, shortened. Um, not as active there. We just, we periodically share some information beyond what Panorama is doing as well as any updates there. But the best place is through the website, sign up for the mailing list and we'll keep you posted. And for the librarians in the audience, you know, definitely engage because librarians are very willing partners when it comes to figuring out how to access and share data. So the more librarians we have uh, working with us to help us find some angles to help publishers look at more than just ebooks will be really valuable. That was awesome, Guy. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Jeff.